thousands of children are school striking for the climate on the streets of Brussels. Hundreds of thousands are doing the same all over the world. Let's flood the world of climate activists. Let's get out of the zones of convenience and join forces and start taking ourselves more seriously. Welcome to our podcast. We are historians for future, and we want to know what historians and other researchers or activists have to say about a climate emergency, our history and our future. Our aim is to provide a historical perspective on the climate and biodiversity crisis we are facing. How did we get here and where might we go? Hello, my name is Isa. And joining us today is Kimberly Aiken, who is a research and policy associate with the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition, so-called ASOC, currently based in the West Coast of the United States. Welcome, Kim. Thank you. So let's start with a very simple question. What do you care about the future? Uh, what do I care about the future? I think that's a great question. I mean, I care about um, you know, a thriving humanity. I care about, um, you know, the hope that we can find our way back to compassion and empathy for one another as individuals, but also collectively as global citizens. Um, I think we've sort of lost our way a little bit there and perhaps have probably forgotten that, you know, we have more things in common than we have uh, different about us. And um, so that, yeah, that's one thing that I, I really care a lot about, um, you know, for the future and, and hope that we find ourselves, you know, back on that track sometime soon. Okay, and now that we have talked about the future, the next question is for me, as a historian, equally important. So, do you think that the past is important to tackle the climate crisis we are facing at the moment? Yes, uh, most definitely. I think the past is important to tackle the climate crisis because the past informs the present and the present decides the future. Um, and by that, I mean, when we look at past climate events, either through um, climate models, for example, um, measuring slow or fast reacting components of the Earth's climate system, such as Antarctic ice sheets or the Fuentes Glacier in Antarctica, or uh, simply witnessing the devastation of wildfires to biodiversity across the planet, or uh, the thawing of permafrost in the Arctic, I mean, you know, these events should and must inform um, policy interventions that will be effective in responding to climate change. So the past is entirely important. It holds um, a lot of answers and, and tools to, you know, both our present and to our future and should certainly be used, um, I think, as a, as a guiding tool, if you will, um, 
to help us with the challenges that we're currently facing today. Okay, now you've already told me that you're not strictly speaking a historian. So tell us, what are you and what's your work all about? Yes, so uh, like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, I'm a research and policy associate um, with ASOC, the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition, uh, which is based in Washington, D.C. in the United States. And um, I like to think of myself as a jack of all trades, actually. Um, I provide uh, direct support to ASOC's executive director and to ASOC's coalition members uh, through the dissemination of Antarctic and Southern Ocean uh, communication products uh, via online content, webinars, um, et cetera. And I also provide um, support to ASOC's um, Antarctic environmental campaigns, including uh, marine protected areas in the Southern Ocean, uh, krill conservation, uh, responsible tourism, um, you know, conserving Antarctic ecosystems, and of course, climate change. Um, I would probably say that a sample of my best work today uh, with ASOC uh, is the ASOC's digital story map, um, which I uh, created uh, last year, last June, for the Antarctic uh, treaty consultative meeting, um, which is called Securing the Next 30 Years of Antarctic Protection. Um, it's a piece that I'm so very, you know, proud of, and it can be found on the ASOC website um, at, you know, asoc.org if anybody's interested. So in a nutshell, that's uh, kind of what I do. I support all of our, um, you know, political and environmental campaigners in all of our campaign projects, um, you know, that we put forth. Um, in support of conserving um, Antarctic ecosystems. Wow, that sounds interesting and big topics. So how do you, you know, break down these kind of, of steps um, you're working on? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Uh, yeah. I mean, so, you know, ASOC, like I said, is a coalition um, of NGOs and, you know, we all generally come together um, in different meetings uh, now, you know, meetings that are online. Um, hopefully we can get back to in-person meetings um, and, you know, we sit together and we strategize and we brainstorm and, you know, we create work plans. Um, you know, for our mission um, and goals, not only just for ASOC as, as a group, but also for uh, Antarctica and for the Southern Ocean and for the protection of uh, marine and terrestrial uh, habitats um, in, on the continent. Um, and so, you know, it, it generally requires a lot of, um, you know, teamwork um, and, you know, team building and, and working across, uh, you know, different time zones. And, um, you know, a lot of coordination, you know, with our partners and, you know, emerging either with new partners and, and other interested parties who um, are interested either in Southern Ocean or just ocean campaigns in general and sort of building up, uh, you know, more momentum and awareness um, around Antarctic issues uh, to sort of pressure, um, I guess, you know, member states to, to designate even more uh, marine protected areas in the Southern Ocean or the conservation of krill or, uh, you know, protecting penguins in Antarctica and so on. So in a nutshell, that's more or less, uh, I guess, the behind the scenes of ASOC and I guess how we bring all of our work together and then sort of, 
you know, present it to the world. Yeah, just out of pure interest as a historian, how important is a historical perspective in the kind of work you're doing? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think going back to my first response about, you know, why the past is important to helping us uh, tackle, you know, climate change um, or the climate crisis. And I had mentioned, um, you know, an example of like slow and fast reacting components like Antarctic ice sheets or, you know, the Greenland ice sheet, um, you know, or the Fuates Glacier, also known as the Doomsday Glacier in Antarctica. I mean, you know, climate scientists and scientists in general, you know, they, you know, through climate models, you know, they look at these slow and or now, you know, fast reacting, um, you know, components of the Earth's sort of cryosphere system uh, to better inform us of either where the ice sheet is currently, uh, what it's doing, why it's doing what it's doing, uh, you know, why there is so much uh, glacial retreat or, you know, or not. Um, and so, you know, again, it's like, we, I'm not saying that the past holds all of the answers that the past holds, you know, all of the keys to every door, but it certainly, you know, provides us with answers through either uh, climate models or, you know, the use of best available science. Um, and I also think, you know, that the past uh, through community-based um, and or indigenous traditional knowledge and ways of knowing both past and present, um, I believe, you know, can help inform, uh, you know, our, our present and our future. And, and so when we can reflectively look back um, on like where we've been and, you know, and the things that uh, I guess sort of led us down, you know, this path, if you will, um, I think that can, you know, really sort of provide a lot of insight and answers into where we are currently. And then of course, where we intend to go from there. So, you know, the past, you know, it, it is very important in any timeline, you know, um, and I think it's one that should never be ignored, so. Absolutely, and um, we have in our podcast series, one of the topics is that we talk about science, but we would like to stress that the humanities also have an important role to play. So in your experience, how do science and humanities um, interact? Yeah, that's um, also another great question. Um, and I'm glad that you brought it up uh, because you know, in undergrad, I was a philosophy major. So I come from the side of humanities and I have a great respect and appreciation um, for the discipline of philosophy as well as other humanities such as psychology and sociology. Um, and equally so I have a great deal of respect for, for science um, and so on. And I think for me, what's, you know, in my opinion, really important to remember about all of these things is that just like the earth's you know, systems, uh, you know, climatic systems and so on, all of that is interconnected in the same way that the hard sciences, you know, the, the chemistry and, and the biology and the physics and everything, all of that is also connected to the social sciences and humanities. Uh, we can't, 
I, in my opinion, I don't think we can realistically uh, do one without the other. Uh, they sort of go hand in hand and they very much, in my opinion, complement each other in the same way that I think uh, indigenous traditional knowledge or ways of knowing also complement science and, and science should complement, uh, you know, indigenous traditional knowledge and so on. So, and, and, you know, it's like when we look at environmental issues, I mean, yes, the science, you know, you know, we conduct experiments and they tell us things about what's going on in the environment and so on. But there's also an, you know, pretty much always a human aspect to this, right? Like we don't just go necessarily places and conduct science where there is no, uh, you know, inhabitants, unless we're maybe say going to Mars, you know, or something where, you know, we know that there's no life form, you know, it's like, so we have, you know, all of these different things that we're looking at. And, you know, sometimes I think we tend to forget the human aspect or the human dimension, um, you know, of this when we are conducting science um, sometimes and when we look at, you know, things in the environment. And so we have to remember that all of the work that we're doing is, is really for the sake of humanity. You know, it is for the sake of humanity and for the sake of the planet and for the sake of every, the uh, living being, you know, that is that is on the planet. Um, and so I think that, you know, like when I was in, in undergrad, there was, um, you know, I don't know, a separation, if you will, you know, you had folks that were in the sciences and then you had folks that were uh, in the humanities and, and a lot of us, you know, we didn't really talk to each other. We had almost what felt like nothing to talk about when in fact we had everything to talk about, um, which was, I think something that influenced the disconnect also between like scientists and policymakers, right? Like for so long, you know, scientists weren't maybe necessarily communicating with policymakers. They would probably say, well, you know, here's my research. This is my work. Now it's up to you to sort of interpret, you know, this language, uh, you know, whatever, and, and then, you know, and then put that in, into policy and legislation. So, but I think, you know, now we've realized that, okay, we had many gaps, uh, both between the science and policy interface and had some gaps between uh, science and, and social sciences and the humanities and so on. And I think that, um, you know, that people are starting to sort of dibble dabble in both areas and are having conversations that weren't being had before uh, to sort of better influence, uh, I guess, positive change uh, from an environmental and climate change perspective. And um, from your own personal story, um, so how come you were studying philosophy and you ended up not, I'm not sure whether you would call yourself an activist, <laughs> so, so um, just <laughs> give us uh, some of your steps, how you, yeah, how it came all about. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I do think of myself as an environmental activist, for sure. Um, certainly uh, a polar advocate uh, for both the Arctic and the Antarctic, um, you know, for these uh, pristine, very sensitive, very delicate areas. Um, that's not to say that the rest of the environment isn't uh, sensitive. I think they all have their sensitivities, some a bit more than others. Um, I just gravitated more towards the polar regions for something as simple as, you know, they're very cold places and I, and I enjoy the cold. Um, but yeah, but I mean, it's like, if I, I guess in hindsight, if I had to do it all over again, 
Um, I don't know, I probably would have been a double major or something in, in my undergraduate studies, um, you know, probably doing oceanography alongside philosophy or something like that. Um, my, my concentration in philosophy actually was uh, in politics and society. So it more or less looked at, um, you know, philosophical questions about, you know, why, I guess, to some extent, we're doing some of the things that we're doing. Um, and then, you know, more or less saying, okay, well, these are the things we should be doing. So a lot of things for me uh, overlap between both uh, psychology and uh, philosophy, uh, believe it or not. And then, um, you know, of course, I had some courses in environmental philosophy and, and moral philosophy and ethics and those sorts of things. And you ask sort of very abstract questions, um, both around the environment, but also uh, our relationship with the environment as human beings. Uh, which I think is really important questions to ask. That's one of the things that I really do love about philosophy is that uh, it not only uh, pushes you to think, it requires you to think. Uh, it requires you to always uh, continue to ask questions, sometimes very hard questions, very difficult questions. Um, and, you know, and I equally enjoy the Socratic method, which was the whole back and forth of engaging in discourse um, with someone because I find that it helps to uh, foster thoughts and, and other questions that uh, perhaps you were not thinking about before. So with all that being said, um, you know, I guess engaging in this sort of type of Socratic method and, and, and putting on my philosophy hat uh, helps me think about either some very sort of larger questions about uh, the issues that Antarctica is facing um, I, I think it helps, you know, sort of probe uh, some very critical questions that need to be asked, sometimes some very hard questions that need to be asked that maybe we're not necessarily prepared uh, to, to address at, at that time. Um, and so for me, I guess getting involved in polar issues started relatively in 2016. Um, I wasn't in grad school until 2018. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, it was something really as simple and, and silly as, you know, me sitting in my Brooklyn apartment in New York City, and um, I was watching uh, two documentaries that evening. Um, I would always watch environmental documentaries to de-stress um, from my stressful life in New York, and, and two of these documentaries were uh, Blue Planet and Mission Blue, and, um, you know, they highlighted so many areas and aspects of the world that are in trouble, you know, the oceans particularly, and then of course the polar regions. And, and I thought to myself, my God, like, you know, I had heard, you know, before Al Gore and many, you know, other people, scientists, climate scientists saying, talking about this thing of climate change, but I hadn't realized how far, you know, down this road, you know, and how bad things really had gotten. And from that moment, I just decided that, you know, I wanted to be more involved and do more than what I had already been doing um, as a, you know, like when I would just probably do join a rally or something in New York City, I felt like I had to I had to do more. So it was it was really a sort of call to action moment for me, and I sort of took necessary steps to apply to different grad schools and and figure out which program I thought would be best for me uh, to sort of help launch my career. And then I settled on um, you know doing my graduate studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey, California. And, um, and I wanted to work with a gentleman named Dr. Brendan Kelly, who is the executive director of the study uh, for environmental Arctic change and who is the Fulbright uh, scholar to Norway currently. And, um, and I learned 
uh, I think a great deal from Dr. Kelly in this uh, short period of time in, in this one year time. And then my, I guess my academic and maybe professional working career in the polar space started to take off when um, I, I did my um, uh, Center for Blue Economy Fellowship with the German Arctic office in Potsdam, Germany, followed by uh, you know, full-time employment at uh, Grid Arendal in Norway, and, and now here at the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition working primarily on Antarctic issues. So I haven't been doing this uh, for a really long time, as long as many of my colleagues who have been doing this, many of them for somewhere between 10 and 30 years, um, probably even before I was born. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's it's been one hell of a ride, um, you know, some ups and downs, some highs and lows, but it's very challenging and rewarding work. And it is probably some of the most self-gratifying work I think I've ever done thus far in my life. And it's something um, I'm really proud of and, you know, very proud to be a part of a community uh, with other like-minded individuals um, who work, you know, passionately uh, and with dedication every day uh, for the sake of conserving Antarctica and, and other, um, environmental spaces. Wow, that almost sounded like the perfect sentence to, to end our podcast. And for me as a historian, because we are usually, you know, of course we talk to colleagues, but in the end, we do very personal, very individual um, papers and writing books. So it's a very lonely, um, very lonely profession sometimes. So um, maybe as a last, um, advice or maybe some kind of yeah takeaway message for our historians who are listening to our podcast. What would you like to say to them? Well, I would like to say that regarding the past, um, that I think there is still so much we don't know or don't understand from our past. However, um, what we do know is that we have a treasure chest full of adequate tools and knowledge that the past has informed us of um, about our current state of affairs, right? Um, now, what we choose to do with these tools is entirely up to us. Um, but I personally believe that we stand um, at the intersection of a series of defining moments, um, a time when humanity must decide the type of future um, it desires um, by looking both inward and outward to both the past and to the present. Um, and I think then and only then uh, can we truly grapple with the veracity, the veracity of the climate crisis as it is today. Um, I think that would be the message that, you know, I would leave with, you know, historians, uh, with scientists, with climate deniers, uh, with the youth, with, you know, all global citizens um, of this planet. And I hope that, you know, that that leaves something with them um, or awakens something in them uh, to be the change, I guess, that they wish to see in the world and to, to do better. Um, and so I'll, I think I'll just leave it there. 
Kimberly, thank you so much. Thank you.